the unmistakable song and sounds of my guest today, BT Wolf. One part musical weirdo and 100% visionary. This is the storyteller who puts her stories into songs, pioneering new sounds and ways of consuming music that bridge the digital and the physical. She's beamed her music into space, created a wearable record jacket and co-founded a research project looking into the power of music for people living with dementia. It's seen her recognised by Wired as one of its 22 people changing the world, by the United Nations as one of nine female innovators deemed impossible to ignore and even delivering a gig with a difference performing at the inaugural Nobel Prize Summit. I'm Michael Heyman. You're listening to Changemakers. And welcome to BT Wolf. BT, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Michael. It's wonderful to be here and chatting with you. For those unfamiliar with your music, let, let's talk about the musical weirdo, the style, the the ideas, the inspirations. Do, do tell us more. Yeah, and it was this sort of phrase that I guess in some ways just, it just worked because up until then, and you know, I'm not really even set, making an opinion or judgment about either the visionary or the weirdo part but I think the stuff that I do you know yes it's music but it sort of goes into all these other territories and I just found myself getting you know in some ways kind of frustrated with the limitations of labels and boxes you know from a very young age we get so used to putting ourselves in a box and putting everything in a box and the work that I was doing was really about trying to open up a lot of those boxes and connect fields that were traditionally maybe siloed you know as a way of ultimately reimagining the vinyl experience but for today so whenever someone would ask you know oh what are you are you a singer-songwriter or are you a technologist or are you a scientist I I kind of felt like none of them were really fitting and so then when you know Vice came up with this phrase I was like okay yeah you can work with that you said in the lockdown list I'm not a big fan of normal I mean well first of all Tell us the problem with normal and how does it pay to be weird? I suppose that's that's the question I'd ask. Well, I in some ways, I, I don't even think of, like, I don't think of myself as being weird and I don't know necessarily what normal is. I guess by now realising that things that really make sense to me, you know, these weird and wonderful explorations that I've done through my career, um, which just seemed like the most obvious thing, Sometimes when I I see the reaction to that or, you know, I'm telling someone a story and and they're piecing that all together, you know, you realize, okay, this maybe isn't normal. You know, this is obviously the way my brain works or the way things make sense to me. For the benefit of listeners, I just wanted to say, well, well, let's just say about a few of the things that, that actually that might include because a 3d theater for the palm of your hand a wearable record jacket an anti-stream from the quietest room on earth i mean that is stretching boundaries isn't it yeah i guess it is but at the time it just felt like i was pulling a thread of of curiosity and and inspiration and and really seeing where that took me and because I think all of those explorations are grounded in the same intention, you know, this same constant thought that's going around my mind, which is, you know, how do we essentially reimagine the vinyl experience but for, t- for today? But beyond that, how do we just remind people of the value of music and art for humanity and, of course, nature now in terms of looking at the From Green to Red project? So... In that way, it's like, you know, realizing that a lot of the experiences that I love, that I'd loved from a very young age, had become so reduced. You know, we'd lost a lot of the ceremony. We'd lost a lot of the tangibility, the storytelling of this whole variety of experiences. But 
principally, you know, the album experience, which I was obviously very connected with. And so then my my ways of approaching things are just how do you bring in more layers, more dimensions to something that has become so sort of compressed and intangible, you know, floating around in this sphere of information that's sort of constantly bombarding our senses? How do we create things that really make us present, that really, you know, force us to take, you know, time and to go deep so that those those experiences really imprint? And so each one of those explorations, while the outputs were very different, while the people I was working with and the fields that they were, you know, those projects were kind of crossing were all different. The energy, the intention was the same all the time. And I was just following the story, really, of, of each project. I mean, I want to get on to, to the storytelling and also the influence of nature in a moment. But before we leave, I guess, some of, the, some of the projects that you've worked on, I mean, technology also seems to have a part to play in your work. You've referenced in the past the use of things like artificial intelligence. Tell us a little bit about where that crossover between art and technology happens in in your own thinking. So I think art has to humanise technology and technology has to be of service to art or facilitate art. Um, Technology can never lead. You know, art and nature are core to our humanity. This is something that neurologist Oliver Sacks identified. Those two things really make us vital. Technology is not core to our humanity. Technology has allowed us to fast track a lot of what it means to be human beings, but without the true cost or value reflected in the process. So ironically, perhaps, I use technology um, almost to reintroduce a more tangible old school ceremonial experience around music and, you know, art in general, but in a way that is is totally invisible, in a way that is not done for the sake of doing it. You know, you you always have to know why. And actually AI is one area that I, it's funny because obviously being sort of in, in, in many ways technological, particularly in other people's um, eyes, you know, then there's this assumption that I'd be jumping on, you know, cryptocurrency and AI potentials. And actually, I find both of those really uninspiring. You know, it's very much the human touch that makes something move us, you know, so we can't iron out all those imperfections. If you're looking at AI creating music, it's the imperfections that are actually the art. So there's that side. And then, you know, the cryptocurrency side, you've got huge environmental problems with that and also for why you know you're taking the worst of the traditional art world and combining it with the worst of the digital space and specifically talking about nfts and i always feel like it's about taking the best in the best you know where can we take the best from things we've lost along the way where can we reclaim and then where and why can we innovate but we always have to know why but there's there's also something i think listening to you i mean there's phenomenal calmness to to listening to your voice reading your thoughts there is a a kind of a kindness i was thinking about it's almost like putting the being into human being if you like in the, in the sense of just to be feels like 
like so much of of what it is the message and some of the storytelling i thought you quoted mother nature as as your influence through a william blake quote of nature is imagination itself it feels like so much of what you're about is about the stuff that is often hard to sort of put your finger on and say tangibly what that is but is essential to the human experience absolutely i feel like so much of the magic of life is is around us but we're blind to it you know there's so much that we can learn just from little things and n- nature is simultaneously imagination itself inspiring our greatest art but it's also the greatest technology of all you know it's like we we could learn so much from looking at ecosystems or you know the way these species have evolved over millions of years but we're so we're so egotistical you know we're so full of of pride and you know kind of an avarice are we irredeemable <laughs> no <laughs> i hope not <laughs> no I, I i i really hope not and i think that you know we we just have to be conscious. And there was something you said earlier, which made me think it's really just about, you know, us being as present as possible, as much as possible. And, you know, Oliver Sacks talks about it with just being alive inside. And obviously music and art and nature are these wonderful instant connectors that make us present, that make us, you know, aware, that keep us alive inside. And so it's just really about valuing those things and and not getting caught up in a lot of the stuff that we think is important, but really isn't. And if you were to give a piece of advice to somebody that's listening to this and, you know, I mean, you use that phrase, we're blind to it in terms of, you know, we don't see the beauty around us. We don't see the creativity, the art, the potential for the storytelling, the potential for presence, I guess. In terms of a first step for somebody that may well want to go on that journey, is there one or do you just have to find your own way, do you think? Well, I think that, you know, it's... It's every every moment, you know, it's moment by moment. I think the there's a lot of delaying these things like, oh, well, you know, I'll I'll ha- make time for X once I've done all of this, you know. So we are constantly sort of living in the future or living in the past. You know, the stories that we hold on to from our past, you know, determine our behavior and we keep reliving. And, you know, there's this lovely sort of analogy someone told me once about um you know the a duck and two ducks kind of getting into a fight in this moment on on the pond or the lake wherever they are and you know they're clearly really pissed off and you know they've invaded one another's space and then they just flap their wings and then as soon as they flap their wings and kind of got that ag- aggression out you know they move on very serenely and it's like they've totally forgotten that happened they've let it go and so i think it's just about you know, just being being aware, you know, being aware of what's running through our minds at any point in time and how much that is determining how we feel in that moment and just taking the opportunity where, wherever we can to have those little moments of presence, you know, whether that's sitting down, writing a letter. There are certain activities that are almost impossible to do without being present. Something wonderful about physical communication is you really have to be conscious. You know, you have to, every element of it is sort of this, um, you know, from the writing to what you're going to say to the the paper, you know, everything is is setting up presence. And so I think it's about doing those little 
little activities that are invitations for for presence, and then that grows really. But, but I suppose your presence manifests itself in a, in a great sense of peace. But there is also protest here. I mean, the the work that you previewed at the Nobel Prize Summit and that you'll be displaying at the London Design Biennial is an environmental protest piece, isn't it? In terms of so there is there is there is a bite here also. I mean, I suppose the wing the wings of the duck does does have a point that you do want to affect change as well. Yes, you know. I think art has to affect change. I think one of the core roles of art, which maybe has somewhat, again, been forgotten over the the digital age or during the digital age, is that it really is a vehicle for provoking social change and communicating things that maybe, you know, are difficult to communicate through other mediums. So, yeah, and um, From Green to Red is absolutely a protest piece and the intention behind that project is just to create create a wake up really as much as i can you know it's not about giving any solution it's not about pointing the finger it's not about imparting one bit of information it's just about awareness you know if you can see that and think okay this wow this is where we are right now it's about creating that awareness because as soon as you're aware of something it's really hard to become unaware of it but it can take quite a lot for us to become aware. You know, you really need those sort of sharp jolts of... As you say, it's an intervention, isn't it? Yeah, in some ways. I mean, so the feeling I had watching An Inconvenient Truth in 2006, it was literally like someone had was shaking me, you know, and that was then what inspired or caused me to write that song, which then 15 years later became this, you know, visualization of 800,000 years of historic data, specifically CO2 data. But that also came about as in that visualization part, because I was sitting with an engineer friend from NASA, JPL, and he was showing me these CO2 graphs. And it again was like that moment in the cinema watching An Inconvenient Truth. I just felt like, what the hell? You know, how do, does how do we all not realize this? How can we all not be absorbing this? And I think it's about creating ways of people being able to absorb things that are otherwise pretty unrelatable or cold or distant, you know. So that was really the the motivation with this piece. Well, I wanted to, to come on to that, to the point about an inconvenient truth. I mean, it was the jolt. It was the intervention. And I remember talking about it with a friend of mine. He said, well, it was the definition of the word remarkable, as in remarking on it, wanting to talk about it. And I wonder, on the back of having gone and, and, and performed and spoken at the Nobel Prize Summit, where you, you've been with some of the world's most sort of prominent and prestigious names. When you listen to debates about COP26 and about lots of things where it's about practical, it's a very, you know, I suppose it's a logical debate about targets and things like that. It feels like a lot of the things that you're bringing up are, are more existential questions about, you know, what are we here for? What are we doing? What are the things that we, you know, that we can do as people and on a, on a much more soulful basis? And I, I wonder, do they see that as any less powerful? I don't think so. I mean, I, obviously, I can't um, speak for all the people I've sort of interacted with. But, you know, one example was working with this was a, a separate project It was working with this Nobel laureate, Robert Wilson, who picked up cosmic microwave radiation using the horn antenna and thus proved the validity of the Big Bang. And, you know, he's a 
an amazing astrophysicist and you know highly accomplished obviously and this horn antenna is a you know national historic landmark and we ended up meeting in front of it and chatting and I pose the question, hey, you know, would it be possible to send this record raw space into into space using this horn antenna? Thinking, okay, this is a, a whimsical, fun experiment, probably not going to happen. And he went away and figured out a way to update the horns so that we could do this fun experiment together because he was inspired by the idea as well you know and then four years later we're also presenting this as part of my Nobel Prize Summit segment I think when you are inspired by something when you're passionate about something and you really have that vision it's really easy actually to get people to have that vision also like if if they're also inspired by it because that enthusiasm is kind of infectious and I think when the idea is to sort of build bridges because that's really what I'm constantly thinking about how do you take this area that you know maybe there's not a lot of light shined on it or a lot of people don't know about it or it seems sort of impenetrable and how do you make it something that's really humanizing and that invites more people to understand and and get to know it and so when that is also the intention to actually just connect these sort of areas, you know, these islands, using art, but also using storytelling. You know, human beings... That, that's what I wanted to get onto with the storytelling, because I'm wondering, is that the medium? Is that... Because, I mean, the, the magic of the music is the, you know, the narrative, the power of the storytelling. I mean, is that the way that our overall global awareness on things like climate and the challenges that we face? I mean, is storytelling going to be the way that we really do break through? I think I would... Struggle to say absolutely, but I think there is a power in storytelling that is, we know it, it's ancient, it is core to us being able to understand aspects of life and of one another and to make something, you know, relatable that is otherwise seemingly distant. So I feel like that has to play a, a vital role. Um, and and discerning storytelling, you know, it's it's storytelling that is really sort of, I don't know, using its power for good. And I think that actually, if I think about my work, I was thinking about this the other day, because obviously it is music. And obviously, having the, you know, writing songs from a young age and discovering my parents' record collection, everything that that opened up was such a key experience for me. But before that, preceding that, it was storytelling. And one of the earliest things I can remember was, you know, at age three, telling my dad sort of, tra- or he was transcribing all these stories that I was coming up with. And, and then I'd do the pictures, but, you know, I was very young and it was something that I had imposed on him rather than the other way around. And, you know, I realized that obviously you can have storytelling as a sort of imitative or, you know, I- imitation like activity where you read something and then you create your own version of it but I felt like I just had these stories kind of constantly bombarding me you know from from being really tiny and so almost just this endless source of of inspiration. I interviewed Michael Morpurgo the, the children's author and, it, and, and it's it felt like a lot of what got into when he ultimately started writing was quite conditional. It was about, you know, the things that were the opportunities, but also the op- obstacles in terms of expression. I mean, how, how did it work for you, BT, in terms of, I guess, that kind of the journey into the storyteller in terms of what were the things that actually made that possible, do you think? I have no idea. I mean, it, and it's odd because... 
even with my dreams from when I was tiny, you know, I really tiny, I would wake up and, you know, get very scared, describe them to my mum. And she was thinking, God, where are these, <laughs> these dreams coming from? And I think I always had this feeling of just a tap. There was, it was like there was a tap of imagination that I could just turn on and it would take me in whatever direction. And so, you know, when I was really young, it was obviously writing these, or having my dad write these books. And then it was putting on plays and doing radio shows and magazines and, and then obviously writing songs. It was all so natural. And it wasn't like then there was any source material needed for the inspiration. I think that's something I found kind of interesting reading a book by Oliver Sacks, you know, yesterday, just about how often we we sort of mimic and imitate what is coming in, but that wasn't really my experience. So it just felt like the mode of, my mode of operating in the world, I, th I think. Do you find that your imagination changes depending on where you are? Because I mean, you're obviously you're well known for your work in, in LA and in London. And I'm just wondering whether there is a, a situational element to any of this or, or whether it's just that it just happens. It really does just happen. And it's it's something that, you know, when, when I chat with other people and they talk about having a specific place or, or time in the day or way that they would kind of create a space for something to, you know, come through, I'd find that really interesting because I felt like I was being almost like hit from, you know, different directions at any point in time, sometimes in the middle of the night, and I wake up and have to capture it. But I think, um, obviously... When have, you, have you got a pad by your bed? No, I don't, actually. I, I, usually it's all through the, the voice notes, you know. I, um, I, I record a lot of it, but I should have a pad by my bed. So, no, I think that then when you're in certain environments, then obviously those trigger you know core inspirations it's like you know going into the anechoic chamber at bell labs and already thinking about this anti-stream idea and then realizing oh this is the ultimate room of ceremony and how about we build it like this this is perfect you know it's it's very much also about those time place spaces that kind of are informing the narrative, which you can pull in as additional layers. So in that way, yes, you know, it definitely, those, th those kind of um, locational or, you know, geo inspirations are being factored in. But I think in terms of imagination, it's very much limitless. And I think the limitlessness is something that is really important and really hard to kind of encourage people because I think we we really get so used to defining our parameters from an early age, you know, like, oh, I'm artistic or I'm, you know, scientific or, you know, we put all these these sort of boundaries around us and we don't even realize we're doing it or it happens through family or it happens through education. Often those two are big factors. And so we've all already hemmed ourselves in by the time we're adults without even realizing that we've done that. So I think... In terms of imagination, limitlessness, but in terms of actual kind of parameters of projects, I actually think limita limitations are really important because if you had, you know, all the money in the world or you had all the potentials in the world, you'd probably end up doing some really dull stuff. It's really important to have those 
limitations as human beings, which make us push ourselves, which make us sharper, you know, sharpen the senses and the the sort of clarity of the vision. And so I think you've got to allow the imagination to go wherever, but then you need these natural limiting factors, which I think also if you look at where we are as human beings today and our relationship with nature and art, because technology has taken out all of those limitations that we used to have, that's really why we value so little. How do you feel that COVID has changed your relationship with imagination? Because I've I've interviewed you know, writers, actors, musicians. And I would say probably there are two answers. Some people feel that it's been dreadful because, of course, you know, a lot of their their art form re- requires the physicality of, of audiences or, it, or interaction. Some people feel that they've been immensely freed because so many social conventions and norms have been just ri- have been ripped up. And I suppose the question is, how has it affected you and your work? And do you think that it changes things for the future also. I have really enjoyed lockdown, which is maybe not the norm. <laughs> That's why when you said, what's the new normal or whatever, that one of the, the questions, um, that was why I gave the answer I, I gave. I found it has allowed me personally, and maybe this is true for a number of people, just to really focus on what matters and to be much more present, much more aware, and to really celebrate a lot of those little things that we're often way too busy to celebrate. And with that, I think that, you know, I've actually I've actually liked being able to do things from my own space. I think I don't love being in very crowded or, you know, noisy, busy environments particularly. So being able to create things from here has been really wonderful. And one of those projects has been this postcards project with Mark Mother's Bar. And that was very much born out of lockdown. And we're about to have an exhibition of the postcards at the Rauschenberg Gallery. And so being able to do something meaningful that, that feels meaningful, that brings a lot of joy, And it was very much of these times, you know, sort of born out of the conditions that we're living in. That has been, you know, just magic. But the thing I do miss, the one thing I really miss is, you know, the event last week, the Nobel Prize Summit. If you were there in person with that whole ceremony of that occasion and you get to have those real conversations with people, I think that potential for serendipity and for those chance encounters and those sort of um, those sparks that connect, that was something that was very much a part of a lot of the projects. You know, they, they were very much detours. They were never part of a plan. They came completely out of left field. And so obviously when you're not out in those spaces, some of that serendipity is it can be less likely. But I also feel there there is great potential on the other side. Mm. Just want to touch on the work you're doing with dementia, the dementia project. T- tell us a little bit about it because I'm, I'm interested in it from the from the perspective of a you know it's been very highly regarded by people at the time described it as profound. But I'm wondering the degree to which a lot of that passion that you were describing you know in terms of imagination and the kind of I guess that that sense of the ability to think and to dream and to create whether you found something in dementia where that that really is 
something that feels very close to your heart because of that. With the yeah, the music and dementia research project, which was very much inspired by the work of Oliver Sacks, this neurologist who I mentioned, and all of the studies he'd done looking at music for every condition from autism to Parkinson's, um, schizophrenia to dementia. And at the time when I was reading about his work, you know, I had no intention of doing anything in that space I just felt so inspired that there was a human being out there doing what he was doing and then when I found out that family members had dementia and Alzheimer's I thought okay well whenever I'm next going to visit them I'll take my guitar I'll play some songs see what happens and that evolved into this research project um, which I did in the UK in 2014 which was the first of its kind because it was the first to look at music that was unfamiliar for people living with dementia. Typically, familiar songs had been used and, you know, that would trigger a memory and bring someone back. But no one had ever thought to look at music for music's sake, you know, outside of that memory component. Even though Oliver had actually theorized that it should be as effective, you know, because, you know, music imprints on us deeper than any other human experience. So when we saw these responses, you know, people who were catatonic, getting up and dancing, people who were nonverbal, singing along with these songs they'd never heard, it was the most just incredible experience to have and to witness some of these reactions it was so moving and it was so deeply reaffirming of everything I believed about music's power and why it was so important to make intentional art and so actually it just strengthened everything I was doing with all the other projects you know with these album experiences to really make sure that that was as intentional as possible as integrated as possible because one can't underestimate you know, the power of art for us as human beings and and taking even the most extreme sort of example where, as I said, it was, you know, music people hadn't heard before and even in another language. I did uh, one of these performances in Portugal, so there wasn't even a linguistic connection. And, you know, you see the reactions that it's provoking and the activation that it's that is occurring, and you just realise we we know so little about so much. And, and I think you know, I, I, or I wonder actually, for somebody whose life is about creativity and the inspiration that I guess human imagination allows you to you know to deliver. You know, talks about limitless. I mean, the limitations of dementia. I mean, I lost my stepfather to to dementia, and the thing that you become very aware of is that loss of the human spirit, the creativity, that that kind of spark, however you define it. But you feel like like such a sort of a guardian of so many of those, I, I guess, virtues, if you like, in terms of the, the the human experience. And it feels like the right sort of subject area to try and make a difference in. I think that, you know, I think dementia for me was was where I ended up going because of personal connections. But as I said, it's like it's a disco ball. You know, there are so many different pieces of glass that are other, you know, other ways that music or art 
can humanize the human experience or yeah just really bring the spirit into the human experience I think what you said about human imagination as you said it I, I kind of thought well yeah it is human imagination but it's also not it's this sort of higher imagination you know it, it's beyond the personal it's beyond the self it's beyond the identity it's beyond the personality and it really just feels like you're tapping into something that is you know much greater than any individual elemental yeah and it connects us all and it's what nature is a sort of physical manifestation of this universal intelligence you know so in that way it's really like we all have that that capacity and that potential but it's how much we feed it it's how much we tune into it it's how much we listen to it and I think from a very young age, I, I was just always super conscious that that was the most real, you know, the most meaningful experience of life that I could, that I could be having. Now, your tip for life is intention is everything. Tell us a little bit about why that means so much to you. Well, intention is everything because it's the energy that governs everything you do. And I think sometimes... People think maybe it's about, you know, the goal behind a specific project. And it's really not. It's really much more ephemeral and esoteric in, in some ways than that. It's almost like something I think we have from when we first come into the world. And then whatever we end up doing, it's sort of governed by that intention. And the, the, in some ways, the easiest way of sort of summing it up, there's a lovely quote from Jim Henson where he said, from a very young age, it was my intention to leave the world a little better for me having been here. And he wasn't thinking at that point, oh, I'm going to go off and, you know, create this whole puppet empire and be on television and, you know, have a company. That was just his his desire. That was the energy that he was sort of bringing into everything that he did. And that's why I feel like your intention is is paramount. And people feel it, you know, it's like they really feel the energy of something more than even the, you know, the, the sort of logical explanation or the, you know, the form or what it is, how it's done. It's really the why. It's why you're doing it. And I think people really intuitively feel that. And I think that's a, a sort of secret in many ways. I think that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, what is your intent? What is your intention is one of the most revealing questions. I think, you know, you can often ask people in terms of actually where they're going, what they're doing. I'm glad you mentioned, Jim, and and, the, and of course, the Muppets, because your, your quote for life involved having a picnic with a pig. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, the, the picnic with a pig is, is just, you know, that's an aside in some ways, although maybe that's the wisest <laughs> part of that quote. No, so the quote is, you know, really about saying you're going down this road of life and you know, there are never, never too many pit stops. Once you get the map out, you won't be able to refold it no matter how hard you try. And everywhere you're going isn't on that map anyway. And I just, I really connect with that because as I said, like every project I've done was not on the map. 
And, you know, I look back and like when I had the exhibition at the V&A and I'm thinking, wow, my my life's work so far is made up of all these detours, you know, that I almost maybe didn't listen to. But then I did listen to ultimately, you know, and that's the difference. totally new map. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, and I think, Jim, you know, you talk a lot about kindness and gentleness and uh, I just find him such a incredible human being and what he what he brought into this world and how he left it and how he's still leaving it because you know all the pe- people that were touched by him are also continuing that sort of spirit of his work and that you know that spirit of kindness and vision and gentleness and I just think we can never underestimate the power that we have to make a change in this world because by us you know, living the way we feel is is right or by us doing lots of little acts of kindness or, you know, trying to push things forward in, in whatever ways we can. We also create echo effects and ripple effects and we touch a number of other lives in the process. And I feel like that sort of uh, chain of reactions is, is what it's all about. Chain of positive reactions. Mm. What a lovely place to leave it. Beatable, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Thank you. It's been wonderful chatting with you, Michael.
say 